everybody and welcome to another E5 podcast. I'm your host Paul Meenan and I am here with the usual suspects. Please introduce you yourself, my tag team partners. Hello, it's David here, Sparky Ninja. Hello, I'm JW. It's us, it's the usual ones and welcome to, is this part four of our surging debate that we have around SPDs and we're going to kind of grow it today, aren't we a bit? Because we have another uh, guest host on this um, from a company we're already familiar with. Could you please introduce yourself, sir? Hi, I'm Sean Patton. I'm the technical manager of Dane UK. So it's Dane UK. So this is kind of part two of, of their contribution towards the the industry debate that has really got people going because a lot of people want some quick wins. A lot of people want some common sense around surge and lightning protection, but it is genuinely a complex subject. And for me, and again, I'm just going to start off with an opinion. I think it's it's an area of our industry that we have probably ignored, maybe just gone. Yeah, maybe. yeah, you're over there. But, but until it kind of biting our toes we're not going to listen to you much yeah i definitely feel that it's not been entertained yeah in any way for me on training in books or anything it's always been behind closed doors or shut away from me in any other journey i've been on and i've had to look through the keyhole at it and think crap i'll have to spend some time on that well, I've been on I've been on major major infrastructure projects like the early days of Crossrail and stuff when we've done systems engineering workshops and the various like. And right at the end of it, when everybody's done and dusted, someone goes, "Oh, um, sorry, I forgot lightning protection. What are we doing with that?" And the whole room just groans. And you're like, and they just they just don't want to entertain it because it's just another thing that needs to be minuted, to be managed, to be worked, to be discussed. Oh, hang on, there's a there's a there's a clash between the cladding system and the down conductors, or there's a clash between the foundations and the electrodes for the lightning. And it, and it does, it gets quite, um, it becomes this thorn in the side that generally the delivery m manager gets. But what we thought we'd do is we'd bring in Sean um, today. So thank you for coming, Sean. No problem. And we would, we would debate this um, because there's a bit of a background story to it. Now, it, me and my role as a mechanical electrical services manager, engineer, I've always known it as a standard called BS6651. Could you explain to us maybe a little bit about 6651? Yeah, sure. So 6651 became a UK standard, a UK-specific standard in uh, 1985, and it was our standard that went right the way through to 2006. Um, it was a very simple document. It was 140 pages in total. Um, it contained a very brief risk assessment, but to be honest, hardly anyone ever did it. Um, and it was quite a simple, nice, easy to use document that everybody remembers fondly and liked because it was really, really simple and anyone could do it. So why did we go? OK, so we've obviously moved on from that because um, two rules of thumb that I heard when I was when I was first introduced to it was um, all you have to do is worry about the tallest building which was one of the rules of thumb or wives' tales that mm -hmm. came from it. Um, and it was always, yeah, don't worry about it. We just get a specialist in and they put some sort of tape around the building. Um, nobody gave it any credence at all, to be honest with you, um, which is a shame because if you miss out a standard, you miss compliance, and then you wonder what weird things are happening. I'm learning that as well. Um, it's obviously moved on from 6651 and a happy standard that people could enjoy into a far more complex suite of standards, which is the BSEN uh, 62305 series. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to give us a kind of breakdown as to what that is and what they yeah. are? And 
Sure. So uh, uh, BSCN 6305 comes from an IEC document. So it's been adopted by Senelec, that, that lovely European committee. Uh, and mm -hmm. we have a European mm -hmm. normative document, that's the EN part. And then we have the British uh, specific version, the, the BS uh, version of that. Uh, it started in 2006. We're currently on the 2011 stroke 2012 version. Um, it's a four part standard. Uh, Fun fact, there was meant to be a fifth part, by the way, for testing and inspecting, but they never got around to writing it. Oh, um, that would be so, good. Yeah, so um, the, the, the four parts cover all the things that you would need to know, but when you compare it to 6651, um, individual parts of that standard are larger than all of 6651. So um, we now have part one, which is the general principles, part two, which is the risk management, part three, which is the uh, life hazard and, and physical structures protection. And then finally we have part four, which is the uh, electrical and electronic uh, protection. So um, divided up into four parts and, and each one needs to be uh, considered when you put together a whole lightning protection system. And is it fair to say part four is the one that deals kind of the one that ties in and marries surge protection within a building um, to the lightning protection system? Well, actually, the type one devices uh, yeah. appear in part three. So they are part of part three because they relate directly to life hazard. Um, uh, interestingly, um, what part four actually says, and it's on, on, on uh, page 16, uh, note four, I think it is, um, it actually says that if you have a light protection system that only considers uh, the type one devices, although 6305 doesn't call them type one devices, it calls them equipotential bonding uh, SPDs, um, then it's only protecting the structure and life hazard. It is not protecting sensitive electrical equipment and electronic systems within the building. Um, I think that's a sentence and a, and a note from a standard that most end users are probably unaware of and they've probably not ever been told that before. Um, no, I haven't been. Um, but there you go. So here we go, lads. There's someone on who's quoting standards to us. God help us. What do they think this podcast is about, eh? Facts. Mm, so it's interesting. You, you mentioned the equipotential bonding uh, there. That, that's mentioned in BS7671 where we're told about the type 1. I mean, is it considered the same as type 1? Or is type 1, is the term type 1 just specific to a manufacturer category? What is... Yeah, uh, so, so the, the term type 1 actually comes from a completely different standard altogether. That comes from 61643, which is the uh, low voltage surge protection standard. And it's right. about uh, testing uh, criteria and testing protocols. Um, okay. And that's where you achieve a type 1 device from. But yeah, it is exactly. Are they the same, same equivalent? They are, yes, yeah, they're exactly the same. Uh, an equipotential bonding SPD is, effect, uh, or is in effect your, your type 1 SPD, yes. Awesome. Sorry, I was just looking at the <laughs> exemptions criteria for 7671 because it, it exempts 62305 um, installations, and yet the two are inherently, they are codependent when there is one. They must interact with the other. So, yeah, they again, is it me or is, is that a wire and regulations just kind of, I don't know, could we do better there? Is that an improvement in the wiring regs? We acknowledge the fact that a 62305 system will occur in a commercial, domestic, some, some uh, sorry, commercial, industrial, and some larger domestic installations, possibly, and that there is an interface because I'm fed up with gaps occurring on site with the contractors. And this is where the standards need to be held accountable and the committees need to be held accountable because there's two things you said so far. 
Sean, which fascinate me. You've said 62305 was going to have a part five inspection and testing. Now, I don't know about Dave, but in my personal experience, when I was on the tools, when I came through my learning, my apprenticeship and everything I did, when I got to my inspection and testing qualifications and my learning, that was a, a validation of my experience and my knowledge. And also it enabled me to look back and, and build upon everything I'd learned in a logical and analytic way. Now, on lightning protection systems, if you're going to have an inspection and testing standard, I would suggest that can only be a massive, massive benefit to the installers, to the end users from an assurance perspective. And hopefully also, you might be able to sneak in some cross with something like BS7671. For a main, so an electrical installation contractor, if you want to know, you know, there's a lot in these documents. There is a lot, and I'm not going to say I'm competent in the understanding of them. Um, I would have to do more specialist training to to develop that understanding. But if there was something in a part five that an ele electrical contractor could pick up and really go, ah, I understand what's required of me. I understand these systems interfaces. That might not be a bad thing. It it would be based on verification of an understanding on the six two three oh five yes series. But it's it's itself. it's a way of teaching. It's a way of mm. teaching, but the other way because there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm. And sometimes no, no, people don't learn in that normal progressive yes. manner. Sometimes they have to build something and look and go, ah. It's yeah. interesting that it just was never done. Was there was there a excuse for that, or was it just a? Uh, no, there wasn't, and I wasn't. I'm involved with with standards now, but I wasn't involved with standards then. Uh, I don't know why it wasn't ever produced. I'm just aware that in uh, 2011, when we got the revised version of 6305, one of the official notifications was that, as a committee, we've decided we're never going to uh, write and publish a part five as, oh. as we initially intended to. Um, does that does that technically mean that as as an industry you are satisfied with the current outputs of the contractor with regards to their verification of these systems? Uh, that they're I doing would, a good enough job. I would say that uh, from my own personal experience, um, testing inspection of light protection system is the biggest issue that facilities, um, maintenance managers, and end clients have with, with the industry. I would say it's the biggest single problem that they have. Um, so I guess in answering that question, I'm saying, no, I'd quite like a part five. Thanks yeah. very much. So I was uh, going to say, can I publicly state that I would fully support a part five, and the sooner the better. So whoever's the chairman of these committees, yeah. please, on behalf of an actual client who pays money for lightning protection systems, please can you get your finger out and write me a part five because it's something that I would like. Well, we, all, we all know from we all know from our industries that you know it's the initial verification and the, the testing of load voltage systems where we see the weakness in people's performance and the knowledge and skills. And if Sean knows his industry and he says he sees the same kind of trend where that's the area that shows that there's a weakness, then it's yeah, definitely. I think we can all agree that that would be a good idea. Yes, absolutely. Thing, really? Yeah, um, it, it is. It's it's um it, it's something that should be addressed. There are parts of sixty three hundred five that do address testing. So it, you know, it, it would be remiss of me to not say there are bits that mm -hmm. are in there. Um, I don't feel those bits are in depth enough, uh, and um, I think a dedicated section would be um, really, really kind of a, a good step forward. Um, I'm not sure it'll happen, but uh, we can we can keep our we fingers can, crossed. We can always we can always wish, can we? Yeah. Yes. I yeah no. I do you know what I yeah I'm convinced a part five I think would generally help all the experiences I've had with lightning protection contractors and 
and um, the arguments and the debates of the gaps between the low voltage guys. And um, I just think it would work, to be honest with you. Um, JW, what are your thoughts? Any questions at all? Well, not any questions, really. It's just that, I mean, I do uh, domestic stuff, as people probably must know, and lightning protection is something that you pretty much never see on domestic properties. And occasionally you might come across it on sort of like a commercial place, like a church or something like that. And then the, the general thing then has been, oh, that's somebody else's job. Or someone else does that. And it's some kind of mystery thing over to the side that no one actually gets involved with. But if you actually look in BS7671, it's actually referred to a lot of times. And it's though it's not actually in the scope, when you look through it, it says things like, oh, for such and such, please refer to 6305 and something else, look in 6305. So although it's not as part of that, it's actually referred to in it something like about 25 times in there so it's amazing it's, isn't it yeah it's one of those things that you don't know anything about but on the <laughs> other hand you probably should because it's actually says, well, that's the yeah, point go and for, us to, for us to be considered as technically knowledgeable in bs7671 we're supposed to say we can we can understand the content and if the content is saying you don't need to do this because of this and if we don't know what that if we don't know what this actually is because it's some bs number that we can't afford to see or we don't understand then how are we actually complying with what the book is supposed to actually achieve in the first place and if you don't mind rant one of the podcast for me um <laughs> it's um so i I've, i think i've said this before in podcasts but i genuinely do not believe that um if you want someone to comply with a standard or the intent of a standard um mm. we all know that if you go online to bsr online and you want to buy a british standard it comes up as anything between 150 to 300 odd pounds um, if you're an electrical contractor just starting out or trying to grow your business, it's very difficult because in theory, you should know every British standard you're installing too. So how many thousands of pounds are you going to be paying out before you even turned a screwdriver? Um, never mind. I mean, I've actually, I'm not joking. I have employed specialist subcontractors and I've said to them, do you have a copy of this standard? And they have said no. It's that, that embarrassing. Hard. And I have had to, I have had a printed version Luckily, I have a BSI online subscription, but I've had a printed version where the guy who I've met has said, can I have a printed copy of it? Because his own employer didn't buy it. And yet they're engaged doing the work. And that we could make a, a series of podcasts called The Dark Side of the Industry, <laughs> where we actually talk about the realities, the realities of how some contractors work and the things we expect them to do and they don't do. That's that first rant over. Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> that thing with the price, though. Actually, I, I just went there and had a look to see how much they would cost. If you go there now and buy all four parts of 6335, yeah. uh, £1,218. Yes! Bargain. There you go. On the Christmas list, everybody. How much is that? 1000 218. And the problem is, that could just be a subject that people listening to this right now are interested in. Yeah. It's not their essential need to work, but they have an interest in working a bit better to explore an area, maybe to seek training, maybe to go with that list or someone later to train and go into that industry. But they need to have access to the industry first to understand it. Yeah. And that is immediate brick wall. Well, you say yeah. brick wall, but but uh, um, Dane have a way around that brick wall and we'll cover that a bit later on. Yeah, um, we do. But for those of you who want to um, are listening and want to buy your friends and family the ideal Christmas present that <laughs> you could also benefit from, BSEN uh, 62305 parts 1 to 4, 1,280 of the Queen's pounds. What a bargain. Mm. What a bargain. Mm. Um, so there's a blocker straight away to industry growth. And that is an excuse for most electricians. 
Yes. That's the thing. It's an easier excuse because they can go, oh, you know, reasonably practicable, man, money, and all this stuff. You say about literally where regulation relates to the nature of the work. You say, well, at this standard that is hidden away, they just it's just an excuse. And, and that and, and but but Dave is bang on there, and and it's we always talk about competence relevant to the task and all and the nature yeah. of the work. Uh, if if you make stuff prohibitively expensive and you don't authorize an industry and you have no controls other than after the horse has bolted, um, this is why a lot of specialist contractors have had no access to standards whatsoever, but are doing it. I know major electrical installation contractors that don't have copies of most of the standards they should be compliant with, and I speak from my experience as a client when I've gone out snagging and when I snag I always code or quote the standard that they're not in they're not in compliance with and you'll be surprised you know how many companies uh, have done earthing installations and when you say seven seven four three oh they go pardon mm. and or they build a substation you go are you, are you earthing the fence what for because seven four three oh says you earth the fence around the sub do we never done that before I've been doing this 20 years like, but there's a clause in that standard that says if you build a metal fence around a substation, you bond it. No, I've never done that, mate. So then you end up, they bugger off and you end up getting your electrical contractor to do what they should have done. Well, yeah, so the point is you end up having to educate them as well, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I think that's... I think in our industry and in the nature of the electrical industry, we are always going to... Given what we know of our industry, I think it would be wrong not to be in a consistent sharing engaging developing and emerging of our knowledge because if the british standards aren't going to help us and they're not going to be accessible the only thing we can rely on is healthy debate factual knowledge guidance notes publications from the yeah, manufacturers yeah. Uh, stuff like that to help them on that journey and hopefully they'll see a benefit in reduced rework less mistakes um, yeah. better reputation less comeback do you know what i mean better warranties all that good stuff that's where the incentives are that long term, but then again, that's an asset management mindset rather than a, a just get it in, get it done, get paid mindset. Um, so, just before we move on, if unless anybody's got, I want to, I want to kind of go a bit more into. Um, I'm, I'm going to happily admit on this, um, I'm not competent in six two three zero five. Oh, I agree. I am not a. I am not a practitioner. Of I'm reading it as we go. We we. I, I'm, I'm the 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 geeking me wants to just be able to quote it verbatim. I just don't mm -hmm. have the time in my job as a client, which annoys me. Um, but I promise on this podcast, I will actually take some time to to read, to highlight, and do my usual learning and CPDing of a standard. Um, Six two three zero five is in four parts. Yes. So we know part one is general principles and it introduces how we design a, a lightning protection system or an LPS. Um, yep. There's part two is risk management. Yes. Um, and it's not just physical damage, it's human life, loss of sub services, et cetera, which kind of crosses into the, the SPD for bullet points in the, in the regs. Um, yeah. Part three, physical damage to structures and life hazard again, but it has these four classes of protection. Is there any chance you can take us through these four classes of protection? Because I am, I've, I've heard of them, but my developed application of understanding and how is I was. Is this would... the R1, R2, R3, R4s? Or is it something else? Oh, there's two different things there. There's levels okay. of protection so and there's, there's four subjects that you could, you could potentially risk assess. Yeah. So, 
So yeah, so when you're doing your risk assessment, there are four things you can look at. R1, which is uh, loss of life. R2, which is really badly worded because it's described as loss of service to the public, but we should really think of that as business continuity. Can that building open up and do what it's meant to do? So um, if mm -hmm. I always give exactly the same example of this, if you take the kids to school, you're dropping them off, but the school has had some kind of issue overnight and the lights are off and the fire alarms are going there is no way the head teacher's going to function exactly so the building can't function as a result of that that would be an r2 thing then there's r3 which is loss of uh, cultural heritage cultural pretty heritage. straightforward and then finally we've got r4 which is loss of economic uh, value um now r4 is a bit of a, a mystery it's not one that people do very often and again i always use exactly the same example for that if you were to take an aircraft hangar on its own, a large metallic structure with a steel frame sitting on a large reinforced kind of concrete pad, it's not that much of a risk in terms of if it got struck by lightning. But if you put an Airbus A380 in it, that's cost you a couple of hundred million to, to buy, and you're going to lose millions with it flying back and forth from Dubai every day, then you yeah. would consider it. Um, so is this assessment of risk then uh, really also down to the business to take part in? Because who determines here what is economic value? Yes, yeah, so it is. And you need quite a lot of information to do that R4 risk assessment, which is one of the reasons it's quite unpopular, because you need to know things like amortization rates, mortgage rates, um, what is the value of the contents in the structure? What did it cost you to build the structure? What does it cost you to maintain that structure? So mm. getting that level of information, I've got to be honest, is quite difficult. Mm. And the majority of lightning protection companies are fairly small. They tend to be, apart from one or two big names in the industry, they tend to be um, kind of family-run businesses with one single branch kind of thing, which I guess is, is similar to, to, to uh, electricians. A lot of them are, you know, fairly small owner-operator type businesses. Um, they just don't have the time to be trying to get that information. And as a result, they tend not to do R4 or even talk about R4 very much. The, the so. tr trouble is, is on major projects now, if you just look at a bill of quantities, um, they should have all that information by default. And I'll tell you what, one, one thing I can see immediately that's a clash. So if you go on to an airport job, I can guarantee you the airport will have the, the unit cost of every piece of rebar, concrete, the labor rates, everything detailed in a spreadsheet, and it will be under lock and key by a quantity surveyor. The trouble is they won't release it because it's commercially sensitive information. Yeah, that's the problem. And that is an inherent clash with trying to get this R4 system done the right way. Mm-hmm interesting i didn't know that okay interesting yeah and to be honest again personal opinion really you should always be doing at least r1 and r2 and the reason for that is that uh, and i guess this comes from my kind of knowledge of the risk assessment and how it's built up r1 looks at different things to r2 there are different types of risk there are different sources of damage and types of damage that he is looking at and r1 largely is going to result in you having more physical structural lightning protection this is where, loss of human life this is loss of human life and the, the best way to cure that is to put more lightning protection on r2 is going to drive your requirement for surge protective devices this is your so, services exactly because it's your, exactly that is your services so um you should always be looking at both of those um as an absolute minimum r3 is not always applicable clearly um, and R4 typically would be applicable, um, but if you've done R1 and R2 and it says, yes, you need a light protection system, it should be You're this. You're there system. already. Yeah. You're there already, exactly. So yeah. typically, uh, and when, um, when, when Dane offered this as a service to people, um, we only usually do R4 if 
the result of an R1 and R2 risk assessment has said, no, you don't need anything, but the client still thinks there's actually something of value, either the, the nature of the structure or what's inside the structure is of enough value to warrant it, it happening. So um, that's where we would do those. So is that is that when, um, so there's a term lightning discharge calc. Yes. Is that, is that done as part of the R1 then? Uh, the... All of that would be part of any risk assessment you do. You're still collecting the same data. So you're collecting, you know, how big is the structure, how long are the service uh, entry lines that come into it, um, whereabouts is it physically. Um, uh, so all of that kind of information goes in. And then other things, you know, um, how many people are in it, how long are they in it. That's one of the biggest single drivers, by the way, is how many people are in it and how long they're in inside that structure. For those listening, then, is there any chance you could cover what a lightning discharge calc is and maybe how it links to SPD selectivity or selection? Or is that just too heavy for the, for now? I don't know. It, it, it would be quite heavy. Uh, okay. You're looking at your, your level of flash density uh, and the, the number of times that that structure might see an event in the course of its lifetime, which you, you can establish that. That's something that can be established using risk assessment software. Uh, we have to use software because it's a horribly complicated calculation, by the way. It's horrible to do that's do we, always a... do we have a preferred software out there is it <laughs> is it like with the fire guys they use legion software for modeling of of people in and out of railway stations so you've got these little weird bodies that run around and yeah so there are only two that i'm aware of one is called dane support toolbox it's made oh, okay. by a strange german company called dane and uh, it, it's it's the uh, we're pretty sure anyway. It's the most widely used software uh, in the world for doing it. And the other version is uh, called Strike Risk, and it's made by another company that are but mostly uh, from Nottingham. So are these calculations, are these calculations modelled on a you know a principal standard or something? Yeah, they are. So all of that information comes in part two of the standard. Um, so. Okay. Uh, if you put the same information into uh, uh, Dane Sport as you put into Furze's strike risk, you should, in theory, get the same answer out. Um, neither <laughs> company has any kind of input into that. It is, it is all standards-driven. Um, and to be honest, it, it, there'd be no kind of gain in, in, in tweaking your software to do that. I'm absolutely uh, sure that the, the guys at Furze would agree with that. There's absolutely no point in doing that because ultimately you'd get found out people mm. tend on the whole to have access to both of these packages um and if they were constantly doing one in one package and, and then checking it in another package and finding that they got different results out then you know they would be on the phone very soon to very one or other organization yeah. so um yeah they, they are largely the same so it's all standards driven um and from there it tells you the le if you need line protection it tells you the level of line protection that you need um and that kind of brings us back to paul's point about those four different levels there are four levels yeah and this is uh so this 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 um math is in the dot the dash two standard you say it is yeah and it, as i say it's horribly horribly complicated um and effectively it's looking at three types of damage which come from four sources of damage which then lead us on to four types of loss um and then it's taking all of that information about that structure and working out a whole lot of them so some of them are looking at really quite specific things like um the risk of fire from a direct strike to the building uh, and then also another part of the calculation will look at the risk of fire as a result of an indirect strike to an incoming power or data cable so it's, it's and it's molding many variables 
Exactly, yeah. And it's molding yeah. all of those together to get an overall picture. And then it basically I'm in, works. Um, I'm in 4.3 composition of risk components. Is it around there? It is exactly around yeah. there. Yeah. All right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go through it either. But I just. I just like to. I just like to look at this stuff. Cool. That looks fun. If you're looking in in that part of the document, the important bit that you need to look at is five point four. Note uh, two is the most important bit. That's that's 5. the note two. Yeah. Note two and note three. Note three is my favourite everything I've ever written in a ever read in a standard because it just simply says that additional measures. May, should be taken. It doesn't say what those measures are. It just says you should consider additional measures, which I think is a an absolute uh, genius piece of uh, of standard writing. So uh, I read that now. It's, yeah, it says when the damage to a structure due to a lightning may also involve surrounding structures or the environment, for example, chemical or radioactive emissions. Then additional protection measures for the structure and measures appropriate for these zones may be requested by the authorities having jurisdiction. Yes. Hmm. Mm. Fun. Yeah, exactly. And, and reading that, what exactly does that mean? So, uh, and, and I think that's basically that's tells what... you you don't know. <laughs> that's basically what it says. The trouble yeah. is, is the trouble is, is, and I'll, I'll say this to any, anybody. And and in my career, I have found it's when you go to a, <clears throat> and again, this is just in my experience. So I'm not speaking on behalf of any industry. When you go to a group of people who have budgets and responsibility for managing of infrastructure and may not even be aware there's a need for competency in that management mm. and you try to explain to them this stuff you need to do for something you can't see you can't smell you can't really hear um and it's kind of it could happen it's very difficult to quantify in a why should we do this Yes, and, and this is the trouble with earthing and bonding in general. It's mm -hmm. easy to quantify earthing because that's for safety. It's easy to quantify bonding, lightning protection, um, thanks to six six five one and the whole highest building in the land, Malarkey. Yeah. It's it's very very difficult mm. to break that mindset, and the industry did itself no favours by going around and saying, yeah, 6651, oh, there's just this risk assessment where you've got this sphere and, oh, and it's the highest building, but you don't have to worry about it. They get a specialist in and done themselves no favours there. 6651 was so um, user-friendly as well because you could walk to, up to any structure and immediately tell the client what he needed because it had a, uh, a make or break point, which was, Below 20 meters in height, you did one thing, and above 20 meters in height, you did something different. Um, and it was always the same. So you could walk up to a building, and generally speaking, if it was seven stories high, you did a quick, usually three three meters a story, that means it's about 21 meters high. Okay, so this is what we're going to do, Mr. Client. Whereas if it was six floors, uh, only six stories high or lower, you'd walk up and say, okay, we only need to do this. Uh, 6305 is very different because it is managing risk in an entirely different way. It's actually not even that fussed about whether your building gets struck or not. It is what are the implications if it does get struck. And, and it, it, does, it does look at it in an entirely different way. It's not looking at it saying, yeah, this building probably will be struck. It's looking at it saying, because of the nature of this building and what could potentially happen, you need to mitigate that risk by taking these measures. And that means you can't just look at a structure and say what it needs. So a red flag for anyone who is listening to this and, and um, ever employs a specialist line of protection contractor, if they walk up to your building and start telling you exactly what it needs, pick the phone up and find somebody else because they absolutely must do a risk assessment to work out the level of protection they need. And you that, cannot that, tell by looking. That, 
and that risk assessment is going to be based on them asking you a lot of questions. Absolutely. We've got about a 14-page questionnaire that we send to people when people ask us to do a risk assessment for them. So mm -hmm. we send them a, a questionnaire that wants to know an awful lot of information. Um, so I have yeah. a question then. Um, okay. Just for the end users of buildings, more importantly, really. So uh, if you have an installation that um, it was done to 6651, um, is there any obligation or duty on people to bring it into compliance with 62305? No, there's not. So there's absolutely no uh, legal driver to, uh, to to make them do that whatsoever. No requirement, no responsibility to do so. If you chose to, you could. Absolutely, you could. Yeah, yeah. And usual kind of rules apply, don't they? When people talk about amending 50% or more of the structure, uh, mm. they tend to talk about upgrading it. So uh, we would normally advise people on the same kind of thing as well. But uh, otherwise, yeah. yeah, there's no requirement. I mean, a lot of those variables of that risk know. assessment could have changed over time. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Which is another thing that I always tell people as well to do. Every five years, you should be having your light protection risk assessment re-looked at because buildings change organically sense, we know yeah. uh, every single time that you have another service entering that structure that is going yep. to change the number of routes that lightning can take into your building and you need to revisit that um and again i always i've, I've got some standard things i always explain to people uh, i live in stockport and there's a, a building in stockport that when it was built uh, i tendered for it at the time i was a contractor uh, didn't win the job uh, and it was just an ordinary everyday piece of rentable commercial office space and as soon as it was completed that building was taken over by sky and they put a big uh, uh, glass kind of uh, building on top of it and an extra floor uh, and they filled it with people uh, to have three floors of it were used as a call center so all of a sudden that rentable office space when we did the risk assessment people probably thought it's got people in it from kind of eight in the morning till kind of six o'clock at night and from monday to friday now all of a sudden it's got a sky call center in there and that's 24 hours a day 365 days a year that changes the risk assessment it needs to be re-looked at because the level of lightning protection will no longer be appropriate yeah. do you know what i've never ever thought of it like that no no, I've never, I never. But you're absolutely right. I mean, with any other, let's be honest about it. If there's a change of use of a building, um, uh, any facilities manager or, or infrastructure owner or manager of people immediately say, "Oh, we've got to, we've changed the use of the building. We've got to update the fire risk assessments." Hmm. You don't hear people harking on, "I need to change the lightning protection risk assessments." Or re revisit it. Most I mean, people don't know where they file any um, risk assessments for it. Again, your fire risk assessor should technically have this kind of this kind of trigger to say. We need to update if we if we change as Sean's just said all these variables that can change, you know. Dave, Dave, <laughs> Dave, Dave. Um, I would love, and the I know one or two people in the fire industry who are wonderfully, beautifully competent. Um, still, the challenge is out there for anyone in the fire industry who does fire assessments to come on this podcast. I will be gentle, um, but I can promise you this. Um, I have met with fire risk assessors and I've said, what would you like to see as far as paperwork, electrical certification, lightning protection systems? It's very much the similar. Um, who remembers the dime bar advert mm. Harry Enfield did in the early 90s where they're waving the dime bar and go, do you remember your first dime? And the person scan. Oh. They don't do it because what's happening now in fire is they're using software. And the software is creating a series of questions with outputs for anyone to go along and hit an iPad, write a summary of what they see and all the rest of it. And it becomes rubbish. 
it's literally like almost just a wet finger in the air rubbish they're not looking in the level of detail they should do um for me a risk assessment should never be based on a reform audit it should be based on the guidance notes for the specific infrastructure um i mean there's one there's one there's a government note on fire for transport premises and even in that it actually does mention lightning protection systems as a potential source of ignition but i don't think it does in the reform order it just says sources of ignition i'm so glad you've mentioned lightning as a source of ignition as well by the way paul because interestingly it is it's a it's a big issue and people do mm. need to take more care with it interestingly in 6305 itself it only actually mentions ignition four times um, and that's not nearly enough, given that if you look at something like uh, BSEN 1127, which is the, the explosive equipment standard, they have a whole page dedicated to lightning and the fact that a lightning event in an explosive area will always lead to ignition. So it's important that people do think about it. Um, we've done some work at Dane with the Institute for Fire Safety Management. Um, and if you want, I can give you a contact there who may be prepared to come onto your podcast on another occasion. Oh, um, yes. so, uh, yeah, he, he may well be able to, uh, to come on and do something with you. In all fairness, I'm probably going to knock on, I'm going to, in the next couple of weeks when I get some spare time, I'm going to knock on some doors of some institutes and just say, come along, come and have a chat in the evening, come have a friendly chat. Um, because it's, it definitely stuff that we need to know. I think well, at least it's, it'd be nice to put the information out there in a digestible form that people can choose to listen to or not. Um, chaps, do you have any questions for... Um, just one for... to mention this. We've just obviously talked about the fact that 6305 never received its fifth, um, its uh, inspection and testing. So is there is there anything in the series or in the industry that says about routinely re inspecting a installed system or doing this risk assessment is there anything within this yeah yeah there is um and um it, it's it's a bit of a clash between the standard and some other things that are out there so electricity at work regulations probably trump 6305 mm. so most people are happy to continue with because it's an electrical subsystem within a building they're happy to continue with the uh kind of annual test and inspection of it um Interestingly, we still get a lot of people talking about doing it every 10 to 11 months, uh, and that actually came from 6651. That's gone is that, now. Is that with variations of the it was very Yeah, it was variations of yeah. season and, 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 and groundwater. Um, it was always a bit of a red herring, to be honest, um, but um, it was there. So you should be doing it at least every year. Uh, 6305 actually suggests that for very low-risk structures, you could put that out to two years. Um, although it does preface that because it says that you should still carry out a visual inspection. Uh, but probably more importantly, it says for high-risk structures, you should be carrying out much more frequent visual inspection and also potentially some uh, sample testing and then do your big annual test. So if you're looking after a petrochemical site, you probably want to have someone in looking around that site at least on a six monthly basis, I would I would have thought, to have a look and see what's going on. So um, it gives a, a variety. It also interestingly talks about um, being competent and it actually gives a bit of a description of, of that competence. Um, and as an industry, generally speaking, we, we make test engineers have to sit a, a, a slightly higher level of uh, of their mvq they have to be uh, mvq3 before they should really be doing tested inspections so uh, that's part of an upskilling program that the industry's been going through for a while i i'm kind of looking forward to the day where we actually start saying level four was going to be the minimum standard for people doing this because level three has been so badly watered down 
Um, level, well, level three to me is the start of a journey still. Level level, level two is, is actually just... more approachable now. The QS and the QCF was introduced. You know, yeah, level four is much easier to reach now as well. I, I genuinely do believe like that all of the seating guilds courses we do should be leveled up to a level four type. I think I think they should be a lot harder. I remember doing years ago the 16th edition amendments and they were far harder um in what they asked of people to understand and their knowledge and the pass rates and i i yeah i mean the best electrical courses i did were level four uh did two four hundred design and verification um really ascertain and verify your knowledge your application of the intent of these standards just a quick one because sean you've just upset me um <laughs> so on a side note 11 months yeah i should definitely be making a phone call to my lightning protection maintainer on a monday i shall leave it at that because um <laughs> 11 months is what i'm told yeah uh, that, 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 that went in 2006 that's that's not applicable what clause whereabouts can i find that those golden gems to um oh so that's uh, the, so the testing requirements are yeah. in, in part three um and i can't remember off the top of my head which part that's fine part three i will look for them when yeah. we finish this podcast and um there's, there's two sections of it because i think some of it's in annex e and some of it is in annex d annex d is the part that deals with explosive structures so that's got a little bit extra information in there um but um yeah the the the, the 10 to 11 months was definitely definitely only in 6651 and it does not form any part of 6305 at all it's amazing. Do you know what? Lightning protection, you could sum it up with one with one term. Wives' tales. There are so many wives' tales. I've never seen a part of the electrical industry with more wives' tales in it. The reason, though, I mean, our industry has not been keeping us informed or interested in this subject. And, and to be fair, yeah. the, yeah. the industry itself has, has not moved on as much as it should. So I think if you were to take a guy from about 1890 into most modern buildings, he would not have a clue what was going on. He certainly wouldn't understand the Wi-Fi control for the biomass boiler. But it's if you up onto the roof, so it just shows how valid it is to stay up to date with this. It does, yeah. Oh, if, massive! If you put that guy onto the roof to show him the lightning protection system, he would recognise twenty-five by three copper tape, although he would have known it as inch by an eighth, and he would recognise a B bond. So those things haven't changed those things haven't changed for for best part of 150 years um and i think uh, as as an industry it, it's our responsibility and i'm talking specifically the light protection industry now it's our responsibility to try and drive that change on and, and to make that happen so that we drag the industry into the modern world um light protection's the, one of the reasons as i guess as well that, that electricians maybe have, have have issues with it is that it's largely a non-electrical discipline most guys that install lightning protection have absolutely no electrical training and they are mostly mechanical and mostly what they're worried about is how am i going to reach that and how am i safely going to be able to install what i'm installing and it's lots of drilling and it's lots of hitting things with hammers which, um, there's very little electrical work goes on which makes you wonder how testing happens if they haven't got you know if the majority of people installing don't have that electrotechnical yeah, well, it kind of makes you realise why they there. didn't want part five, <laughs> because they didn't want labourers and absailers and various other blokes having to, to have that listen, level. I'll tell you a story. So I was on a project. It was a brand new London Underground Station build. It was a big metal clad building and there was a, a lightning protection system down conductors to electrodes all around the building. And uh, the chap who was installing it was um, basically down to test it. 
And I remember going, oh, my God, he's testing it. Great. I don't know how to test these systems. Fantastic. I'm assuming he's going to use a three or four probe test and look at the resistance for the electrode or do something. And this guy basically took a mega and he took one of the probes and stuck it in the mud. And the other one, he put it on the um, the tape. And he was putting it on 500 volt insulation resistance. And I was just like, I was standing there going, um, okay, hang on. I'm is that the way? That yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. It does. It stops you dead and makes you go, what? Mm, and and yeah. then he, I said to him, I said, oh, wow. Fascinating. What are you doing? He says, I'm reading continuity. And I was like, but you're on insulation resistance. Yeah. No, you're not. And he was like, um, um, and I went, do you know, how to, don't be, please don't be rude, but do you actually know how to do earth electro testing? And he just went, no, not really. I just got shown you by some other bloke and I was just like, yeah, that would and be that, very that's where there's definitely a need for people who are, uh, for me, when you mentioned part five, I, I'm, I've got this bull by the horns now. <laughs> I, I have no problem with a mechanical guy, a laborer doing the manual work to, to yeah. install an LPS. But when you are bringing into use and commissioning competently yeah. an electrical safety system, there must be some inspection and testing guidance for use by competent persons. It's the same that, scenario we had in 7909, but we have that need for a technical competence because of the, the certification part. But a lot of the installation work is done by non-electricians. The rigging and the actual erection of the system is carried by non-electricians, but they need that verification, and that is in 7909. Mm. The testing... I have to say, and safe earth testing does form part of their level two and their level three MBQ. So they should certainly have those skills and, and, uh, and capabilities and have those competencies. So if someone was using the meter badly, I guess you would say, mm. you're only ever as good as your worst guy. Um, so, uh, yeah. Is there a, sorry, you've mentioned this. MBQ. Is there a specific qualification number I can look for? Uh, there is an MVQ that is delivered by the CITB uh, at the National Constru Construction College at Bertram Newton. So that is where the apprentices go. Um, and if they don't do it as an apprenticeship, they can do it as a, what's referred to as an adult learner and then do the on-site assessment route. Um, so they're the, they're the two routes to getting their um, CSCS uh, skilled workers card. Okay. Lightning conductor engineer apprentice. It's lightning conductor engineer, and then there is one as well for um, for steeplejack, um, uh, but they are different courses. So, oh yeah, and, and steeplejacks, lightning conductor engineers and steeplejacks. Yeah, yeah, there's there's yeah, the two two different courses. So, um, JW, any any thoughts or questions? John obviously is domestic, henceforth. We're, we are talking about stuff that would normally go on commercial industrial, but there is a, a violence behind the silence, JW. Um, any thoughts? Sorry. Yeah, so lightning protection isn't something you generally see on domestic at all. Uh, I've never seen it on a domestic property, and uh, it's not something you'd even really consider there. But so you do tend to uh, see it on the <clears throat> buildings. I'm you get certain, off. Yeah a lot as a lightning protection contractor to look at domestics um but but price and inconvenience quite often puts people off um mm. so whilst whilst we're telling stories i i as a back in my contracting days i did a, a, a domestic installation on a house in the middle of the ashdown forest in sussex and um 
uh, I've never had so many phone calls from a client ever. Um, he, at one point, he actually said, your guys are on my roof. What are they doing up there? And I kind of said, well, we're going to kind of be on your roof if we're installing lightning protection. And he, in a kind of a rather incredulous voice, he said, you didn't tell me that when you came and gave me the quote. We didn't tell you we were going to on the roof. So I wasn't quite sure what he expected we were going to do. But uh, yeah. Well, some domestics don't even anticipate that cables have to be buried in the walls, don't they? So... Some, uh, no, you know, unfortunately, uh, yes, uh, there are certain where people uh, expect, oh, can you put a new socket here? And then they expect the wires to magically appear in the wall and uh, don't have to actually do anything. You haven't, you haven't found, John, you haven't found the magic invisible cable yet. <laughs> Is that not in that big box of rubbish that you've, <laughs> yeah. It's, isn't it awful when you go into someone's house and they go, yeah, yeah can you put, yeah. Listen, I, I, I remember once working for British Gas and, this family had brand new carpets put in and this woman said, oh, yes, um, uh, enjoy, I'm going out to work. And I went, just to let you know, madam, I'm going to put a, a, a little box on your wall here. It's a spur and I'm going to lift up the, the carpet and put a cable into where the new boiler's going. She went, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. Otherwise the boiler won't work. She went, no, you're not. These are brand new carpets. You cannot lift up my floors. Well, then you don't have a boiler working. You must make it work. Can't you just make it work? Well... I can give you an exercise bike and let someone pedal to generate energy if you want, but you need a cable and it's mind blowing the mindset of the domestic homeowner. And yet I'm going to say my little piece domestic homeowners, when it comes to boilers, isn't it amazing? Can't touch, don't touch gas Ooh, with electrics. It's uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of work we need to do with hearts and minds of domestic homeowners regarding electric electricity and electrical safety, never mind in the commercial industrial for lightning protection. Now, Moving on from that, so before we do, um, is it worthwhile telling everybody that if you can't afford the 1000 the bargain, £1,280, <laughs> of which I'm sure while we've been speaking, Mr. Ward has already shelled out hardworking cash to buy these wonderful bargains, there is another way of learning about um, lightning protection systems. And I believe Dane have published a book. Sean, would you like to tell us a little bit about your wonderful book? We do, yeah. It's it's lovingly referred to uh, in within Dane as the Bible, uh, but um, it, it is known as the Red Book. It is published. It has a unique ISBN number or whatever you have to do to get a a, a book published. Um, it's downloadable from our website, um, so which is www.dane.co.uk. Nice and straightforward. Um, it, it's uh, an absolute treasure trove if you are nice to your local representative he may give you a nice uh, bound red hardback copy of it um, really Ooh. yeah yeah there, there's there is a nice hard bound copy right. available bucket uh, list added i was going to say i think john might need one to to just to lift up his lights a bit to prop up i'll, I'll do the corporate bit and show i have my copy here at my Ooh. side at all times yeah. as you can see it's a thick weighty it's a thick piece it's um how many pages um i don't know i've never counted but let me just have a look 488 yeah 488 pages of just glorious cpd and and every page you can write at the bottom i don't get it i don't get it and just keep reading <laughs> until you ask more questions and listen to these podcasts and go to Dan. I, and... I had a good read of it when i i flew i flew to um Germany a few couple of months ago before this nonsense hit and uh, with the COVID and I had to read it because I was just you know reading some of my downloaded PDFs I'm one of those guys that if I get free resource I've got to take that and then I'll review it later on yeah. um, 
but I found that I could just pick it up and I just learned something each time. It's got great illustrations, great examples, and it's the pace is pretty good as well. It's, you can actually you don't have to read it front to end. You can just jump into any section. It's well broken. It's actually broken down into bits, and I believe you can download each bit first, can't you, uh, from your website or download the whole thing. You yeah. can, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can either download it in sections or, or the whole thing. Yeah, I, I have found it. When I had a, a skim through it, I thought one, this is a great place to debunk and give more clarity. But also, if you're a teacher as well, when you want to go on that journey of learning, you can you can go on that journey of learning, but also extract key parts. I would love, as I said, part five inspection testing. I would love there to be a simplistic way of stitching lightning protection, surge protection into the hearts and minds of 7671 installers. So the 7671 wiring rigs, electricians know transient over voltage protection like they would an MCB. Mm. Yes. That would be great. If we could get there, the industry, the electrical contract industry would be in a great place rather than having one bloke over there who kind of knows about it. If we can understand the suite of methods of protection we have for buildings, persons and property, and that includes transient over voltage surge, lightning protection, and there are easy, there's an easy common framework. I think that would be a good thing. Um, Sean, I believe, Dane, you guys offer training or you're building a training centre? Yeah, so we've got an academy, which is, uh, I would say, about 75, 80% built. We had to stop because of, of COVID-19, I guess, like all kinds of things did. Um, so uh, that eventually, once it's up and running, we'll be doing a mixture of uh, online courses and also uh, attendance courses. Um, it's going to uh, be my responsibility, which is a bit onerous, I guess. Uh, and that is intended to teach people uh, the basics about lightning protection, about surge protection. Um, and then also for some people who really want to know some of the more kind of in-depth topics, isolated lightning protection, um, getting into kind of data SPDs as well, which is always a kind of a, a murky topic because it's quite a bit more complicated than the, the LV power stuff. Mm. So um, yeah, and there's going to be a range of um, sources of kind of, of 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 learning there. Some of it will be presentation uh, presented. Some of it will be hands-on. So you'll be able to terminate some conductors and physically touch SPDs installed on the wall. Um, I feel sorry for the electrician that's going to be doing the install because he's going to have lots of people looking at his work. And you know what Sparkies are like? They always look at someone else's work and say they could have done it better or different. So his his work is going to be inspected by hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, so I do feel sorry for the poor chap. Okie doke. Um, chaps, do we have any questions? Because what I want to do, if it's okay with you guys, I, I want to kind of wind this up because I think there's quite a lot more that we probably should be talking about. So rather than having a, a, yeah, a I mean, three I, and I a like, half hour episode. I'd like um, to talk think, more about training and the progress for electricians yeah. to get into this. And I think that's a good area for another time. Okay. All right. Well, what, what we'll do then. So, John, do you have any, any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, I think just that uh, although it's something that most electricians never actually looks at before, it is definitely something that at least you should have some at least basic understanding of because, say, it is referred in BSM671 a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And it's often the case that it says, oh, yes, just have a look at 62305. And obviously, if you don't know anything about it, you're not going to be able to actually make use of that. Indeed. Yeah. Dave? Again, it's, it's one of our agendas here is to try to obviously level up people electricians just to kind of give them this kind of platform to talk about things that they may not be familiar with and that's just as much the case for ourselves here uh, i look forward to this academy opening up i look forward to coming along and actually you know checking some of the stuff out 
was going to say form an orderly cube because yeah. I think we'll be at the front. We will be at the front of it. We'll be, we'll be knocking we'll be, on door, going, "Can we come in? Don't really come get in it. now." You know, oh. we'll offer to finish the and then painting. We'll all, leave, we'll all leave with our red book. Yeah, can. Oh, right, that's, that's the point here. And uh, this, you know, this might be a great opportunity, you know, to kind of push a bit more, a bit more support for electricians, because, as John's just said, you know, this, if if the numbers in our book is applicable to our work, and that means it's applicable for us to consider for our clients, especially if the risk assessors aren't doing that for the client, who else will? You know, if we are appointed the service to think about electrical risk, and if that electrical risk is a source of ignition, which we've touched on in this discussion, we've got to consider that. And if those dots aren't going to be joined by the fire risk assessor or his peers, then if we can get some support for electricians to understand that little bit of risk, that little bit of information, they can just throw that in a discussion with the client, and that might make the client ask more questions from the right people. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Sean, please come back and do another one, Lise. I think we've got a lot of chit yeah. chat still left to do um okay. so if it's right with you lads i'm going to wind this one up okay um, thank you time guys it's been great so th yeah thank you very much sean john legend course, dave you. legend and um until the next one which will be probably a week after this um thank mm. you for listening thank you please like and subscribe on all the social media channels or comment below um, we'll also put sean's um contact details in the youtube descriptors so you can contact him directly and when the dane academy is open we will also put update this to ensure that the information on all the course booking is is in the descriptors as well so until the next one uh, thanks for listening and take care of yourself and each other. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.